Welcome to Chicago's Bravest Stories. This episode brought to you by PSP Academy for your CPAT training. Follow us on social media, our Instagram and Facebook page at trainwithpsp.com. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, Father John McNallis for uh, being with us today, and hopefully he can impart some uh, Chicago Fire history on us. Uh, Father John, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Father. Um, first of all, um, explain uh, what it is that exactly that you do for the fire department and with the uh, Fire Museum of Greater Chicago. Okay. Uh, my role is the... Uh, Catholic fire chaplain. There are three assigned chaplains by the um, accepted by the fire department. Uh, we have a, a rabbi, we have a, a Protestant uh, chaplain, and one Catholic chaplain. All of these positions are taken care of by the uh, the religious entity that um, uh, approves their position. I am assigned to the fire department through the Archdiocese of Chicago and the Archbishop of Chicago. Uh, Cardinal Supich was the uh, bishop at that time that I was appointed. He has the full authority for my position. It's not, uh, there's no um, approval through the uh, fire department or uh, city council or anything along those lines. Each of the chaplains has to go through whatever their endorsing agency is, similar to uh, the military, because we wanted to model it after that. Uh, anyone who is a, a chaplain has to have uh, the certification through CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. That is the one of the minimum uh, points that are necessary. And, and, and Father John, go looking at things, um, just did a little background on you, that military is kind of where you got your start uh, as it pertains to, to um, uh, entering the church or was oh, it before? No, it, it's, um, I was already in the seminary oh, wow. uh, okay. at the time, but uh, and that became a part of my uh, uh, work because I was a... Uh, in the uh, Air Force Chaplain candidate, I so let, let's let's pick up let's a, let's start from there. You you received a commission as a second lieutenant, correct? And in 1973, October of 73, what um, it goes back to a, more of a of an interest when I was in high school at uh, Quigley North, which is gone. <laughs> <laughs> then I went to uh, college at Niles College, which is gone. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the whole process of uh, a lot of institutions in the, uh, in the city. But I did a, um, I followed a, another classmate who did a, uh, a science project on uh, I did one on jet propulsion, and uh, 
he had told me the year before when I did a, a project on uh, the uh, honeybee. Mm. I had done that in, in grade school also, and so I just advanced it when I was in, in high school. But I got interested in for a jet propulsion, and this fellow said, you know, uh, you can write to aircraft companies and uh, different military bases, and they send you all sorts of material free. Well, uh, that really became a, a project that uh, numerous times uh, I was getting more mail at uh, the house than my uh, parents received. Uh, and uh, the public relations or Office of Information seemed to have unlimited budgets, and they would send you all sorts of pictures. And at this time, I was building 172nd scale model aircraft, and I'd be writing and asking for specific information. Well, the uh, one uh, organization had sent me information on the Air Force Association. Okay. And uh, I looked into that as a, a, a magazine and really liked it. And I became a member of the uh, Air Force Association, and uh, I'm, I'm a life member uh, of that organization. When I got the material, saw that uh, you could, uh, that they had Air Force chaplain program. Well, I was still in high school, and that was a long ways away right. from ordination, but it piqued my interest. Because at the same time, my brother, who was just um, a couple uh, years behind me in age for school for two years, 18 months in age, he was very interested in uh, the special forces. So we still we had this interest, and uh, what happened then, uh, I saw... Uh, you could enter into the Air Force Chaplain Candidate Program after you completed your first semester or first quarter of uh, theology. And then you get a commission as second lieutenant. Well, when I looked at it, I still had to go through four years of college. Who knew what was going to happen during that time period? But when I finished uh, college, it, uh, we were um, affiliated with Loyola University. I still had the desire for um, uh, a priesthood. So I went to uh, St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in Mundelein, which is the uh, our graduate school, the uh, theology. We already picked up our philosophy uh, requirements through uh uh, the college level. The when I finished the first quarter up at Mundelein, I went to the rector's office and wanted to uh, get into the uh, the air the force, yeah. and uh, so I had kept that whole interest along that time period. And the following year, 
the approval was given through the diocese to do it. And so I, uh, I put in the application, and in October of uh, 1973, I was commissioned a second lieutenant. And that summer uh, of uh, would have been 1974, I went to uh, Plattsburgh Air Force Base for 110 days and included a tour at Maxwell Air Force Base, where we had uh, the chaplain candidate course. Had to get a special permission from the Air Force because you could only sign up for roughly, I don't know if it was 60 days or 90 days is the longest tour, but they they approved it, and I was able to stay the entire uh, summer. Uh, and when I uh, then returned back, uh, the next assignment was the following summer to uh, Lowry, Lowry Air Force Base in uh, Colorado. And um, when I was ordained a, a deacon, before I had to go to uh, sign to a parish, I had a window of 30 days and ended up going down to uh, Hurlburt Field, which is part of Eglin Air Force Base. So I had a, a uh, really an interest. And all this time, I was a second lieutenant, and uh, they were really teasing me at Hurlburt Field because uh, the second lieutenant had— uh, gold bars. It, usually the chaplains were always captains. So I was, uh, even though I was, when I was ordained a priest, I, the paperwork hadn't caught up. So I was in as, uh, for a very brief time as uh, uh, a second uh, lieutenant. When I was uh, ordained a priest, uh, there was a, a Servite priest, uh, Father Mike Doyle, who used to teach at the uh, fire academy, he made contact with me and was uh, very helpful and helped secure um, an assignment or a slot for me out at uh, O'Hare Field with the 928. So I was very uh, fortunate at that time because of his guidance and his leadership. He really knew the, um, the ropes of how to um uh what you had to do to be um right navigate through those through those without a doubt and, and you were able to come back home yes right oh yes uh at this time it was uh uh just a, a local assignments and then after i was ordained 5 years with the diocese my first assignment was on the south side at St. Gabriel at uh, in Canaryville I went on active duty in, uh, in the Air Force and uh, spent three years on active duty. I was stationed at Scott and Wright-Patterson and then returned uh, after three years active duty and continued uh, my uh, career in the uh, reserves, uh, retired in uh, 1997, uh, for, and so I had... Uh, Right around 22 years, 22 and a half years, depending on, uh, with the calendar of combined active duty and uh, 
reserve time in uh, the service. Well, with with your commission, is that different than a traditional military commission? Are you commissioned by the the Vatican, or or is no. it an actual like presidential commission? Like, a, oh, like, all right, no. Uh, just backtrack. It's a military commission, and the uh, no the only permission I needed was to be permitted to do it through the archdiocese, mm. and then we had the military ordinaria who approve your assignment. Do they have like a um, religious boot camp that they would yes. send you through? Yes, uh, except the time period. I was the first class of chaplain candidates. They didn't know what to do with us. <laughs> I want to see all the, the so, priests doing push-ups and pull-ups. Well, <laughs> well, that was the that was the best part because I missed all of that. <laughs> now later classes have it, and they mixed them with lawyers and everything else. So uh, th- those uh, parts uh, didn't. But uh, I was out running every day and and stuff so we had to to run uh you know your i can't imagine a drill instructor like yelling at a priest or you know like really but i had no problem with running so uh and because you didn't have any uh difficulty uh and and some did uh when you when you're when you do the work you're at the top of the class and they they just stay (laughs) stay uh Away, so it's uh, it was enjoyable in in that sense, and um, I have a a real interest in different uh, in aircraft and uh, the various armament. So, so this I, is where you want to be. Yes, and I could go and talk to the people, uh, uh, either the officers or enlisted, in their place of work. And I knew what they were talking about. Hmm. So what, what, what was a typical duty for you in the Air Force then? Like what? On active duty or in the reserves? A- active duty. Okay. The active duty would be uh, the, uh, anywhere from uh, 7.30 in the morning to 8 o'clock at the beginning time. And you completed the day around uh, 1600, 4 p.m. And then if you had uh, a parish meetings, uh, you were at the chapel for what you would be doing in a parish. Throughout the day, uh, because everyone's away from a lot of their support groups, you would have either people coming in for uh, baptism classes for the Catholic uh, sacraments, coming in for um, uh, issues with marriage, marriage preparation, or uh, problems with um, so it was just with your, marriage. Your, your basic services and your basic duties just with military, with that with, correct, with the or or with the um, the spouse. So. Uh, you also had uh, retirees who were at the base. Because we were on uh, a military base, you had to have an ID card 
to get through security. So you can't just come in off the street right. without um, identification. We never asked for identification because the whole place is locked up. They already had it by getting in. So anyone who came and approached us, uh, we would uh, deal with. So you had so, so perform just pretty much performing the duties of a priest with the mil with the with uh, the, the, the military. Base, Correct. Or, I'm sorry, with the Air Force Correct. base background. Yes, and uh, we'd have religious ed. Uh, you had uh, you take confession. Oh yes. All those times at a daily mass, uh, we'd get together and father's oh, talking about right now. Part, yes, he's, he's talking about right now. Would you take confession? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me, Father, for I said. <laughs> Sorry, just, it gets um, with so if if you don't mind, uh, you were talking. You had made mention of Saint Gabriel's. So, mm -hmm. um, so that pretty much ended up, uh, you ended up setting up shop there at St. Gabe's, right? I was uh, there for five years Okay. as an associate. Okay. Uh, the pastor at that time was Carl McNerney okay. from uh, 76 to 81. And then uh, after uh, I came back as a, a pastor in 97 to 07. Okay. So I have had two assignments at in Canaryville. Yeah, and that was where I was, uh, I guess that was kind of what I was alluding to was that, so in St. Gabe's, that's where you ended up kind of starting this operation, right? Y yes, uh, that was my first assignment. But it also has another link or hook. In um, 1980, the parish celebrated its 100th anniversary of... Uh, the parish was founded in 1880, and I had a, 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 a history was my major with concentration, and um, I, I had uh, took a lot of U.S. history courses. But in the school, I started teaching Chicago history, hmm. and that became up until really now. Uh, when I'm assigned to a parish that doesn't have a school, that's when I stop uh, teaching Chicago history. But I had the interest in with with Chicago history, and so I was working on the anniversary book of the uh, for the parish for the hundredth anniversary, and I was given a name who I had no idea who he was <laughs> was Ken Little in the alarm office. He said, oh, he knows uh, uh, everything about uh, give, Chicago give, history. Give the listeners a, a little background on Ken Little because um, when we started going down this road to get somebody from the fire museum down here, that name, everybody knew Do. that name. Well, first of all, uh, Ken Little's son, uh, Steve Little, is uh, 1st Battalion Chief uh, in Battalion 1. Ken had a career on the um, in the alarm office that revolved around his job and his hobby. <laughs> so he would get a call asking uh, reporting the fire. Then he would send out the apparatus for the fire. So well, let, 
Let's just backtrack a little bit because when people think of the alarm office, they think about modern day alarm office today where it's computerized oh, yeah, and they, you know, uh, you can find out where, uh, you know, the closest um, piece of apparatus is and they press a button and they, you know, they get all the companies going from the press of a button. What kind of set the stage of what Ken had to do back in those days okay. as far as dispatching and how it came in and um, kind of give a little history on how like a call actually came in and got dispatched from, from Ken okay. back in those days. Well, the, the biggest thing is that uh, both uh, uh, time periods, the alarm office was computerized. Except today, they have a keyboard for the computer. When Ken Little was the uh, alarm office operator, the computer was his head. <laughs> and he had all of the facts in his head. Hmm. Which is completely different than it is now. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is mind-boggling today. Yes, because uh, Ken was able to share everything on uh, uh, where companies were. Uh, if they were out on the street, he would remember that they sent them somewhere and they're coming back. So, uh, and all of this had to be done, uh, you know, uh, they didn't have a computer for a backup. They knew where all of the companies were, the streets, and... Uh, Everything, all those details. So when uh, Ken, as a hobby, he would, after his ship was off, over with, if it was a major fire, he would stop by a firehouse and talk to the personnel of being at the fire that he had sent them out to. Then he would go over to the site to, of the building that had the fire and if it had some history, then he would talk to other people. So then he would go home, get some sleep to go back to work <laughs> at the next shift. So a couple hours just to just to get back. Correct. In. So what Ken was doing is that his job and his hobby were together, and that was the uh, really the uh, uh, the interest. So he had uh, when it went back to him, we were getting information on uh, Canaryville, the fire companies that were there in 1880. And that began the relationship uh, that I had. Ken's up on the northwest side. Uh, a family used to live on Patterson and uh, near Cicero. Uh, they have, uh, they sold the house after uh, Ken died. Uh, they didn't need that. The family had gone uh, their own family ways with marriages and they didn't need the size of the house anymore. And so uh, the family residence is no longer that. It's been sold to another uh, other individuals. But when uh, that's the overview with uh, another person that has an integral part and then can uh, uh, get some other questions. Uh, Father Tom McCrone is ordained a year 
after me. I was ordained in class of 76. Tom was ordained in the class of 1977. But he knew that I I had contact with uh, a Ken, and he kept saying, you, you have to sit down with him, with Ken, and learn stuff that he has. You got to tape uh, his knowledge. He's just so loaded with information, and and so he he kept pushing on that, and that was the start of what uh, eventually took place uh, when I was at uh, Saint Peter Canisius, now closed. <laughs> Uh, on North Avenue and uh, near uh, Laramie, uh, not too far from from Ken, uh, sat down. Uh, Ken, I said, "Well, why don't we do a uh, a book on uh, the fire department?" And said, "Oh, I've always wanted to do that." So you you've wrote more than one book, correct? Correct. Um, and I've actually seen them in several firehouses and have gone through them and it wasn't until recently that I was like oh that's who we're that's, that's who we're having in here I've that's actually right that's my guy <laughs> well what Ken uh, started obviously he wanted to do a history and um, we started with uh, putting it in period of decades and as I, I put it on and now this is in the 90s uh, before you had the spreadsheets, they were right. the computers weren't uh, I was say, before, very before sophisticated. You had Wikipedia, and, yeah, uh, Google right. searches, or is even this, even is this that. The, is this there the was book, no internet. Um, Chicago right. firehouses, correct? Okay. So uh, Ken said, uh, "Like to do uh, uh, history." I said, "Okay." So set up the template, uh, where to fill in the information, and he kept coming up. Will you have anything for me, Ken? No, not yet. I'm working on it. And, <laughs> and eventually he said, oh, that's not what I wanted to do. I want to do a different history that they that they don't have. I said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to talk about the history of the firehouses. That's where everything occurs. I said, okay, let's do that. So we started again with the time frame, and we thought that the original book would be oh, one book, and, and that would be it. Kind of like an overview is yes. what you thought initially. Right. Overview of the fire department, whereas... The overview ended up in four volumes of 300 <laughs> pages each. Which, which is the oldest firehouse? Uh, standing or uh, well, in operation? Let's uh, because it'd be engine thirty now. Oh. However, eighteen when we did the book was the oldest, and now engine eighteen is one of the newest. Correct, <laughs> <laughs> but the old one is still standing. And uh, where's the old engine eighteen? I, I uh, for some uh, reason I assume that... on Roosevelt Road across the street from Holy Family Church. Oh, okay. Oh, that's like some art Arts, artists or, or right. something, right? Yes. Um, I for some reason I like assumed that engine ninety eight would be one of the oldest. No, that's nineteen oh four. Okay. 
So uh, just rail that one off, huh? <laughs> no, that's that's actually going to be in the in the winter of 1904. It was a cold one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was rainy that day. <laughs> but then, uh, what about the just the first firehouse period? Do you have that information? Well, that was um, uh, in uh, a building called the Armory. It did not have. Um, um, maybe just back up one thing. For Chicago, we had uh, two departments, a volunteer department and a paid department. What year was that? Uh, 1858. 1858. There was a major fire. Some of the people were full-time, but the whole department wasn't full-time. Okay. There was a fire in October of 1857 on uh, Lake Street. That uh, and, and this is very difficult. It was operated. The fire was handled by all volunteers. So to know if everyone was a volunteer or not, it depended on how they were brought into a company. But nineteen people were killed when this uh, is like walls Lake, came down. Lake and what do you know? Uh, would be Lake and. Can uh, roughly canal. Uh, oh, so like down roughly down, oh, downtown. Oh, it's in the loop. Okay. Yeah. But uh, so that would have had um, nineteen people were killed. Nineteen members. Well, that's Volunte- that's civ- and civilians, but we don't know if all of the oh, volunteers were. Vo- I, I understand. Okay. Were assigned into. That's it. So. Sure. Then, but John Dickey, uh, he's buried in Graceland Cemetery, is, um, and you can see his grave, it has a helmet on the top of his grave. Uh, so now it's Clark, Lake and Clark. Hmm. Okay. It's a little bit different. Uh, he was the, uh, is recorded as the first volunteer and the first member of the fire department to have been killed in the line of duty. The newspapers just went to town on the lack of preparation for the fire department, and because of these buildings were so big that uh, they needed a paid department. Do you know what the population of the city was back in that, that time? 1858. I'd have to look that up. I don't know that number offhand. Um, but, but it was still considered like a big city. No. Even by that not at that standards? time. No. no, not at that time. Okay. Not until after uh, uh, the Civil War. So it would it would be like like kind of like a s- smaller suburb then that we would consider today? Well, was, even the area was small. Yeah. Uh, because uh, there really was nothing north of the river. There was some, but it was all open fields in at that time period. Everything had developed from the uh, the river south and going west. So there wasn't the need for a large department. No, but they needed a paid department because of uh, uh, the buildings were getting too big for volunteers to operate. So the... Uh, Mayor John Wentworth 
approve the beginning of the paid fire department. What is interesting in Chicago, now this isn't the rule of thumb for all departments, but in Chicago, the volunteers never had horses. They, they pulled their cart by hand to a fire. Oh, <laughs> uh, And uh, back in 1857, Chicago's population was roughly 90,000 people. That's not many compared to... <laughs> not, not very much at all, especially compared to today. Yes. <clears throat> the pay department never pulled a rig to the fire. They only had horses. But as I said, uh, Milwaukee is, for example, had a volunteer. They used horses, uh, but Chicago never did. That's the yeah, major. The, the Anheuser horses served. Correct up there, right? But uh, the major difference in Chicago is that split in the time period. The volunteers did not have horses, and the paid department always used horses. Well, I I remember when I first started, I would go to these older houses and they had the wide staircase and it would be circle. Circle. So, right. And they would, I mean, and I don't know if they what said is it's true. true but, so that the horses wouldn't go up. That was true. Oh, really? Yes. So, so the they, horses wouldn't go up the stairs? Stairs. That's right. That's crazy. So yes. here we are. We're, it's, it's fact now. Yes. Right. You know, I, I and this is kind of why I wanted to have you on because- We've all heard certain stories like the, the staircase and the horses and, you know, like, um, uh, you know, putting hay up there and stuff, you know. Oh, correct. And, and so to actually. Well, if you, anyone goes by 98, if you park in the, or walk around to the, uh, off of Chicago Avenue to the rear of the building, there is a steel beam coming out of the top floor. And that is the. Uh, Just like a they, farmhouse would have. They pulled up the hay right. up to the um, uh, upper the level, here, yeah. right? So um, the the pay department was only two men in, in uh, 19, 1858, and they were drivers. But in 1858, in the armory, they didn't have uh, a place to store the rigs, or the horses. So the first firehouse, they had to, uh, it was their location, but they had to move and bring the horses over. So if they got to run, they had to go grab the horses. (laughs) And then they realized that that's not going to work, and then (laughs) they started building a firehouse with the the horses. So from what year... Did we start building firehouses to accommodate horses? From the beginning until now, horses ended in 1923, in uh, February of 23. They stopped building new houses, oh, May, uh, the early 1910s. That, that's always the hardest one. What do you call 1910 to 1920? Uh, the 20s, are, it's the 20s. Right, the 10s. But, but what's, is it the 10s? It just <laughs> the, doesn't fit. Right. Because they knew that they were making the transition. 
Chicago was the first large city to be completely motorized, but they didn't have, uh, it took a while. So uh, the houses in the later 1910s had no stables. They knew that this house was always was going to be motorized. They weren't going to have horses. Is that did they we did we go from horses to steam, or did we go straight from horses to, um, like gas right, engines? Right, gas engines. Well, the problem is the steamer. They had, those were with horses, and then they did. But but come the steam up. wasn't propelling the. The, the engine, it was more as a pump. Well, except for three of them were self-propellers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the one thing, the best rule of thumb, especially in, in this discussion, is that the fire department is very consistent at being inconsistent. <laughs> so that's the rule of thumb. So as soon as you say, well, this is the only way, then you say, but... <laughs> There was one other situation. What is interesting, the uh, there's a couple of pictures, um, the self-propeller. There are three engines, one 17, and I can't remember where the other engine was put, but they were deemed unsafe because they were too fast. They only went three miles an hour or four miles an hour. On the street, but that was up, I think. So they didn't when, have helmets, so yeah. So when they came out, they had the self propeller, but they reverted them back to uh, horse drawn steam engines. Oh, okay. So, okay. so that's the earliest time, and it was only a couple of years in the 1880s that the experiment lasted, and then it wasn't until 1910 that the First engine was a, and it was at engine five, and I think uh, one other company that shared it with, it was a not engine, but a monster of a rig. Not was the company that, that was yes making? K uh, K N O wait N O T T okay yeah so that was the company that uh, made that and that was the first motorized. Rig now. Chicago also had uh, they had more ho- uh, hose carts motorized before they had the uh, fire apparatus. The steamer had no room; uh, it was just a big boiler on the back. So they had to have another rig to put the hose bed on, and that was the the hose cart. The Early vehicles were were motorized uh, with the um, the hose. So uh, and, and again, so that's in the 1910. Um, but we're not motorizing the 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 engines or or the trucks yet. So back in 1910, what does uh, what does the Chicago Fire Department staffing and manpower look like at that point? Uh, the uh, at the turn of the century, go back a little bit earlier in sure. uh, 1900, uh, we did not have a hundred engines. It's after 
1900 that they started to get the uh, 100 engines. The, the 1900, they were the last engine to put be put into service was over on Goose Island, uh, and that, uh, and then we start moving up to eventually 130 engines were in Chicago. Uh, and that's the uh, the time frame, and then your trucks and uh, developed, and then all sorts of special apparatus, and then in the mid twenties, what, uh, what year did we start uh, implementing trucks? Oh, right from the beginning. So uh, we had engines a, and trucks right, yes, right from the start. Right, right from the start, okay. they were called hose elevators or an aerial ladder. But um, I think we only had three trucks. Uh, the the truck, there was a truck that existed for the 1871 fire, but it wasn't used. We had one truck for the yeah. Great Chicago fire? fire? Yeah, at that okay. time. <laughs> well, so let's, let's start with um, the Chicago fire, uh, since we, we've already touched on it. Um, that... That whenever anybody, you know, you Google anything about Chicago Fire, that's the first thing that pops up. And for, uh, from what I read, the reason that it got out of hand, number one, was that they were sent to the wrong address. Is that correct? That's one of the there, uh, one uh, of there the There is a whole list of, of things that, correct. you know, it, 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 it was a tinderbox. Just it was correct. a matter of if it was a matter of when the city was going to catch fire, right? And. Everything that you, the two things that you have mentioned, if you look at fires today, the same problem is amplified with the problems of that time period still today. So, first of all, uh, look at um, we're um, uh, we're coming up on. Uh, anniversary of the Chicago fire in October. So this will be uh, from 1871 to uh, 2021. So uh, there's going to start being a, a, a lot of information around uh, your, your, even though we're a ways away, but this would be the time that listeners to start thinking about the uh, the 1871 fire now, uh, because before you know it, we're here and we're celebrating an anniversary, and you you miss the the point. Well, uh, the Chicago fire of 1871, uh, Ken Little always made the statement: if it didn't occur on October 8th and 9th of 1871. It was going to occur in 1872, and if it didn't occur in 1872, it was going to occur in 1873. And the second Great Chicago Fire occurred in 1874. So because uh, there were all sorts of mistakes, the... uh, we had fewer than 20 engines for the Chicago fire. The night before the fire, one of the engines is 
broken down, so that reduced the, and the shops were destroyed because of the, the fire location was over on uh, Jefferson near the uh, 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 Union Station. That was that block that burned down. What was there was a big fire the day before that kind of. That's the night before. Yes, the night before. Okay, because yes. there was they were fighting that fire, which was a big fire, and so personnel wise they were down. Right. Well, you didn't have shifts. Right. So you you worked all the time. You got time off. So, but you didn't have a double platoon or triple platoons. There's no one to relieve you. Right. And so... These guys went to a big fire, and then they're, they're off. Then they're, <laughs> they're right back to work when they're shipped. Uh, in the firehouse with horses, they didn't have any food. Uh, because the kitchen today were the stables. So you didn't ha- uh, people had to go to their home or... Uh, 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 I don't. We didn't have that many restaurants because they couldn't afford anything like that. But they'd have to either bring some food in or go out to get something to uh, to uh, eat, and they would. Um, and that's a, an amazing uh, tracking meal times. Looking in old journals where they were set off for a different time, but the Chicago Fire. Uh, address uh, was uh, keyed in or called in from the uh, watchtower at City Hall. And uh, it was given the wrong address at uh, Canal Port and Halstead, not at Jefferson and DeCoven. So uh, that delayed the alarm. Uh, the pull box over at uh, Roosevelt and Canal had a drugstore. Uh, the store was closed, and you couldn't so pull they that box. So weren't able to access that box, right? That's that's an error. So here, here, your cell phone is dead. You can't do too much. You get the wrong location. Uh, how important that is today, weather was against them because it uh, had only an inch of rain in for several months. Everything was tinder dry. And the winds were, were, were blowing. But sidewalks, fences, streets, buildings. They were all wood. wood. <laughs> uh, we've had uh, have water. But when the pumping station at Chicago Avenue uh, is it catches fire, that ended the water supply. And that's not the pumping station that we traditionally know as like one of the the survive last surviving things of the fire. Um, that sandstone. That is okay, but the, but that- the uh, but there's two buildings. There's the the water tower and the pumping station. The tower was just a standpipe to keep the surge. Uh, that survived the fire, but there was nothing to burn. The pumping station, uh, which had the machinery, that roof burnt down, and it 
put the uh, the pumps out of commission. So then you have your uh, raw breakdown of equipment and uh, uh, the exhausted personnel. How many of these things impact uh, whether um, major injuries of a, fall, a collapsed wall uh, at a fire? Then you, you have to have a you have a mayday, or you ask for another uh, more companies for support. Uh, breakdown of and, and equipment. You said there was only three engines. No. Uh, uh, less than 20. Oh, less than 20 before yeah. to... At the time of the Chicago at the, fire. At the fire, right. Yes. Uh, so uh, it was three trucks. Okay. But they didn't have anything else. Uh, there's, uh, at the time of the Chicago fire, there's no ambulances. Uh, you had um, a, some, a hose cart. Uh, not a hose... Uh, I don't think there were holes wagons at that. It was a, a, sp- a spill, a spool with hose. No mutual aid. None. <laughs> Although they did, uh, they got on telegraph and asked for companies to come in the, uh, and a lot of the suburbs did send some. What suburbs were around uh, during? Oh, that they time? they sent letters up to uh, or a telegraph up to Wisconsin. Really? Yes. Uh, during the 1971 anniversary, they listed all of the cities, and um, but they were just small little farm communities. Right. But if they had a, a rig, they they listed that they they came came here. So there's uh, if the big guy in the Midwest is at ninety thousand people, yeah, you know what's uh, what are but but again back then building materials were. You know, things weren't burning like gasoline like yeah. now, so this thing was going for how long? Did Two days. They, Two yeah, days. Right? Yeah, it started Sunday evening, and um, it burned till Tuesday. So historically, uh, I mean, it's 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 was known or was believed at the time that the Chicago fire started at five fifty eight West Decoven. Ooh. Right? Um, not that number. I, I, uh, I'll zing you on that one. <laughs> Give it to him, Father John. Yeah. <laughs> you know, With be, such confidence, he yeah, said it. So right. gotta... <laughs> yeah. Because they, they changed the street numbers in 1910. So, oh, it's a formality. <laughs> so the them. numbers were different. But the spot still the exists. The location is correct. And but the number is different than so. If you were to look up any newspapers, it's not going to have the number that number. Well, it, it explain to people why, why, why like why that address is significant and why I would know that address because that's the location of the fire academy. And there's a like a uh, flame like a right right Egan Weiner's the architect, and the pull box is three four two which is the uh, box alarm that was located at Canal Port in Halstead that they pulled for the fire. But it's not at the fire because uh, the, the fire academy is on the site of where the O'Leary barn is, but that firebox was at, set at Canal Port in, in Halstead. So you, have to, you, you really have to dig into some history. And after the Chicago fire... Box 342 was moved up north onto Chicago Avenue, 
And when they built the new academy, they put Box 342 at the academy. Oh, okay. So, but now you start looking at that. That's back in 1961. Box 342 is practically <laughs> all of the history. It's always there. Right. But it wasn't. Right. Well, you have to. So you have to look at the history, and that's when it really becomes interesting for um, uh, uh, when you're researching that. But it can get you to be very confused. Well, so you know, you talk about like these what we learn throughout, like living in Chicago, and you know, if you're, you know, at, at some point during grade school, you're going to do a like research on the great Chicago fire Correct. and stuff like that. And you, and every kid learns about Mrs. O'Leary's cow, which went by several different names, Daisy and everything else. And then we find out later that a reporter actually admitted to fabricating that story. Something different, isn't it? <laughs> see, different, I've said history different. doesn't change. Right. Reporters fabricating there was fake stories news all the way back then. <laughs> Correct. And but what's really the problem is that the reporter used to steer a bull, and if you tried to milk that, <laughs> it takes you forever. <laughs> you, know, you know why the lantern was kicked. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes you longer, that's all. <laughs> but it, um, yeah. for the O'Leary family, they were like officially exonerated in 97 <laughs> by Alderman Burke, right? They had the retrial at Northwestern, right? Oh, they, that's they, right. They, they, they actually did a real, real set. Okay. Yeah. So. You know, what? one thing that's interesting now, if anyone has the opportunity to get out an, or find an old video. I don't know if it's been transferred to DVD, but the title of the film is the, was it the Old Days of Chicago? And it's a historical film. I think Tyrone Paul is in it. It's absolutely horrid <laughs> on historical facts. You're not really selling it, but uh... <laughs> but it's hilarious to watch because Catherine O'Leary and her husband are coming into Chicago in a covered wagon. <laughs> the horse team goes wild. On the Mayflower, pulling <laughs> yes. into the uh, that's the only one that they didn't into Navy Pier. That <laughs> they didn't think of that. I'm sure. Her husband is killed on with the runaway team. <laughs> and Kate O'Leary's is a poor widow with two sons, one who is uh, becomes a politician and the other is a crook. Wait, I just said the same thing. Uh, but her husband was not killed. Uh, coming into Chicago, and she did not have a son who was a mayor. She did have a son who was a crook, but uh, he ran that bar on the south side. That's right, the in Canaryville, right? And the house, which eventually caught on fire. And yes, and Canaryville visitation 
and um, uh, Calvary Cemetery are the connections because the O'Leary son's house is still standing uh, uh, on the uh, the south. Uh, and they're still West living side. descendants of that the original Katie up O'Leary, in, right? Up in Michigan a number of years ago, I, I went out to uh, Mount Olivet Cemetery and wanted to find uh, Catherine O'Leary's grave, so I went into the office. Oh, we have family members that they won't allow us to tell you where it's at. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, when did the cemetery open? And they said, uh, uh, 1890. I said, oh, Catherine O'Leary died in 1894. Okay. Um, I walked around, went back in the cemetery. She's in Section L. How'd you find that? I said, I walked until I found it. And I looked at every grave. And I just went down because the cemetery wouldn't have expanded it's only four years, so she's buried there with her husband. And um, well, that that family took a lot of heat. Oh, very much like, so for uh, years and years and years. Yes, um, yeah. um, and she. What is interesting? There is no known photograph of Catherine O'Leary. Now, there's rumors that the family had one. But when we look at it, it it's a, a different picture. So as far as we know, we have never found, Ken and I never found an actual picture. There's a lot of drawings of her uh, and uh, satire and everything else, but no known uh, picture of her uh, of her. That you guys that anyone's really that we have found, and that was something that you guys actively tried to research. And well, yes, because uh, they lived in several places down Halstead, going south. the uh, The funeral for Catherine O'Leary was at Visitation Parish, so um, that was pretty much the uh, the connection. And her uh, her son was a multimillionaire. Uh, he uh, had a, a, a various trap doors and secret passages for gambling in uh, his some bar. kind of mobster or something like that, right? Uh, well, the mob didn't exist in the time period that he was, but the neighborhood speakeasy, yeah, yeah uh, all of that, a gambler and and stuff, avoiding taxes. And he said that his his place was cop proof, bomb proof, and fireproof. And then, and, and it then it burnt down. <laughs> yes. Well, which which would lead us into the whole stockyard fire, right? Well, then it was the, the stockyard but, fire that burnt his place down. No, uh, because that was uh, it was the stockyard in not the stock not the stockyard in. It was a stockyard um, um, tavern where or hardware store. That's where his building was. Oh, okay. Uh, but the uh, the stockyard fire. Never burnt uh, east of uh, Halstead, the 1934 fire. It, it never. It, it it didn't go that far. Okay. So, uh, but the you, 1910 is only one building where the firefighters are all killed. The 34 fire was the uh, um, the second largest fire in Chicago, other than the Chicago fire. Well, 
the Chicago fire in 1871, 300 people, roughly they're saying, were killed. That they can possibly identify. So for as big of a fire as that was, it wasn't the biggest loss of life fire-wise, correct? In, uh, well, here we got another exception. Okay. <laughs> when, what do you consider a fire? Be uh, because aircraft crashes have been higher deaths uh, than uh, the structural than the structural fire. The uh, the three hundred could have been as high as six hundred, but they never wanted to increase those numbers because so many people weren't uh, known. They were. They moved to Chicago to get away. I was going to say, still as is they're a moving west, city, they're not. They're not as they're moving to west to be to start a new identity. So we don't know what well, the numbers are. We, almost twice as many people died in the Iroquois Theater. Fire, Correct. Right? That's, uh, that's so um, you have that's six hundred there. So you have you know a fire that went for over three miles, three square miles, mm -hmm. and then you have. One Twice building. as many people die in one mm. theater. One building in the front rows. Right. And so that, that's another historic fire. Yes. Um, December 30th, 1903. Approximately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> and that fire kind of set the standard for a lot of codes and um, You're fire absolutely correct. And, and that's, things that we do today. And are always talking about it. Uh, there was uh, Chief Charles Pierce. Uh, he's now deceased. He would be over a hundred years old, but he was um, uh, a chief when I first started coming uh, involved with the fire department. But he told me a couple of things. Whenever he goes into a theater or a hall for any entertainment, he always looked where he was going to get out, and he was never from the way he came in. Because he said, everyone's going to be running back to where they came in. He was looking forward to the side door or up by the stage or the screen where he was going to go. His other um, statements that he used to ride the L around if there was one by uh, his district, and he looked at the weight load on the top of roofs, uh, especially with all of the air conditioners and the equipment that is placed on the roof, and he's figuring out how dangerous is that building for the firefighters after a fire starts. Looking for his target hazards. That's right. And so those were two things that, to this day, I you, you remember that uh, advice. So what, what I look at buildings when I go into the theater. Where am I going to get out? Right. What was what was the big um, uh, problem at the Iroquois Theater that, from what I've read, they the drapes started on fire and nobody did anything for a long time because they thought it was part of the show. Well, there's the because uh, things were uh, the, there they, is they were lit by candles or or lant lanterns. Correct. There's um, uh, they had a fire curtain, 
it was lowered, but it got stuck in the ropes. And so they would have been better off not having even used it. Well, the fire curtain is just Burned a safety onions. that in case of a fire, they would drop it to, to prevent the fire from spreading. Right. But when it got stuck, that still brought the fire out. So it was just as bad. Right. They should have just left it out. Yes. Doors, the one that you always hear, they opened in and then they chained some of the doors to prevent people from sneaking down to more expensive tickets. Smoke was a killer. You didn't need much of a fire. But uh, when you look at, if you view any pictures of the theater fire afterwards, the back seats, they're not burned. It's the front, uh, 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 the balcony and the, the lower seats. Uh, so the smoke uh, was, got more people than the fire. It got, but it was an inferno. So yeah. it didn't take much to, um, uh, to have the... Other issue is that it was a matinee performance. The majority of people, um, it was during the Christmas holidays uh, that um, I don't know how it compares to what the cost of a ticket, who was able to go to this, to um, down in the loop to, to go to a theater show, but a lot of people with the children were um, the nannies who took the children to the show. Or you, to the do you remember what the show was? Uh, Mr. Bluebeard okay. uh, with Eddie Foy. Well, because Eddie Foy, I, I was listening to a podcast a, a year ago or something like that, and he's credited with saving a lot of people. He did himself. He, and he was the, the, the main actor of the show. He was. And it was. Uh, a Moonlight Sonata was the uh, the musical number. He had his son with him, and he tried to calm the. All right, so he wasn't a firefighter. He didn't have any hose or, uh, and you know what's really um, interesting to see is the equipment that they had. Uh, and I've been trying to look for it uh, down at uh, the fire. Uh, station at uh, uh, Disney World, uh, Engine 71. Engine 71 opened, the park opened in 1971, so that's why it's Engine 71. (laughs) But they had these um, um, fire uh, tubes, and uh, I looked for those, that name, uh, Kill Fire was the one that uh, was used at the Iroquois fire. They were useless. They were baking soda. Uh, so what, what exactly is a fire tube? Like, it, it, oh, <laughs> just a, like, a, like, like a mosquito sprayer yeah, with, that, with, with that, baking that could soda. Be, yes, right. Okay. And, but it was called kill fire. And you will see some of these in, in the museums uh, that you look at, but go and think of how are you going to put that fire out? You'd be lucky to put out a, a waste paper basket. And you guys have been trying to 
get your hands on one of those oh, for the museum? Well, oh, yeah, anytime. So if anybody out there has, has kill a fire. kill fire in their garage or something, <laughs> like, please contact Father but you, John. But see, those are the things that you want to look at, and uh, you, you see the... Uh, uh, the evolution. Right, and how something that doesn't work... And, and they charged, uh, they had salesmen go around to sell the, these items that the cost was not unlike it is today. A <laughs> hundred times the uh, the actual cost of the equipment. Also not <laughs> unlike. If they uh, only had those fire bombs where you, you yes. throw them into the fire and they right. explode and they completely well, extinguish. Well, well, those are, that's the, li- the liquid ones. And they are dangerous. <laughs> they used to catch fire all the oh, time. <laughs> we had some of those that. Uh, I'm trying oh, those to glass up. ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the, the grenades. Do you guys have room. some of those in the museum? We have one on display because we we wanted to get room. They're so dangerous. What What was the liquid inside? Uh, I can't. Gasoline. No, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> the problem is it it takes up all of the oxygen. Right. And that's why they're so dangerous that if you drop them, you're not in a ventilated but room. But they'd have them dead. in these these wooden crates. Along the side of the wall, and you pick them and you throw them. Right. Yes. Um, uh, Just a murder bomb. <laughs> Just well, for the in. person who was using them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's, uh, let's move on to um, a historical fire that's been talked about on this podcast on every other with every other guest that comes in here is uh, um, December of 1958. Uh, Our Lady of Angels, December f- uh, 1st. Yeah. And uh, so where, uh, for people, who, if this is a standalone podcast, uh, tell people where that fire was. At uh, a Catholic school over on um, Iowa. It is... Um, in 1958, uh, I had I was seven years old. I was uh, in that September. I had started third grade, uh, <laughs> so that's the age that uh, that I I was. Uh, I grew up in Logan Square at uh, Parish St. Sylvester's. Uh, we had a new school, and I'm 70 now, and we, uh, when you talk to even the family, oh, in the new school, my God, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not very new anymore. New now. Yeah. <laughs> Did any, uh, any interesting, in, in, your, in your role as a historian, any interesting um, things that you found from that particular fire or... or um, well, it's well, more it's of the more interest, interest that, I that I have had. Uh, I've um, I'm trying to get a list of all the firefighters who were at that fire. Hmm. How uh, how much have you gotten? Um, about ninety percent. Okay. The um, one problem is that uh, none of the journals have been discovered from that fire. There was. Um, Do you think that's on purpose? Oh, or? They, they collected them, and then they didn't return them. Now, if uh, the journals were collected at the time of the Blue Ribbon Commission, uh, they could be 
in storage with the um, legal department or but uh, I, I'm thinking of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. <laughs> that oh, last yeah. scene. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, no, the, and in that regard, do you guys have any, um, sounds bad, but artifacts, I guess, from, from that fire? Do you guys have any? Uh, yes, we do. Objects? Uh, <laughs> and some, they're very, uh, really very uh, meaningful and a very significant uh, one. Um, is um, a, a, a painting of a, um, of Jesus that was in the classroom that was given um, to the museum from a person who had received it for helping in the school. Uh, and it was in the actual classroom. Um, the sister of one of the... Uh, children that died she was moving to uh, Arizona uh, reached retirement and she wanted the museum to have her sister's purse uh, the young girl was sick on the Monday morning she didn't go to school she was feeling better in the afternoon, went to school, and she's killed that afternoon. She was one of the three nuns killed? No, no, little girl. Oh, the little girl. And um, the um, she d didn't go to church on Sunday or what got sick, and uh, she had the purse and her the little children's envelope was in the purse the family gave us that and we put it in a, a display case and that's um, on display um, we have um, um, a lot of um, photographs of the um, the fire and one thing I'm trying to recreate is where the companies were located. On the scene? On the scene. And the personnel. Because that, there's not too many people we can still go back to talk to. I think there's might be less than 10 who are still alive. Yeah. And, and of the members that responded to that? To, to that fire, right. Who was, what company was the first company to that 85. Fire? Um so uh, they came down from Huron. Um, the um, and they had the they received the wrong address. They and that's how critical uh, when you're talking about the Chicago fire is that the address was correct, but not for the type of fire they had. The, when the fire department got received the call, it was the rectory. If the person who was giving the information had said the school is on fire, you would have had a higher alarm sounded right. 
before the first company got there. And here's what the delay is, that you don't get this extra material equipment on the way until the first company is there. And that's delay just a couple of minutes, but that's all they needed. Right, right. And and, uh, and, and if they had a... a, a had said that the the school was on fire, you would have had four engines moving. When 85 gets there, they have to ask for a box, and that delays the the response. response And and so how critical, uh, if someone ever has to call in for a fire, let them know what you have. At the same time, you don't want to say an auto fire unless it's in a garage that has multiple stories. Right. You don't need four engines. So it's important for them to, to give accurate information and uh, the structure of a building. Um, and uh, uh, that was one of the, uh, I think that's the most critical early um situation for the uh the fire because uh that fire also um started some uh, a different way that we do codes and stuff like that as well isn't there um well one of the things that it really changed is that uh, you have fire inspections uh we have fire drills once a month uh that didn't exist and um, the the pull boxes in the parochial schools were not connected to the city. They were an internal alarm that just rang, but the information didn't go to the city. Right after that fire, uh, all pull stations in any school uh rang to the alarm office, and the designated um, box numbers to four schools. And today you get, uh, they, they test, um, if you're listening to the radio, oh, we're at such and such school, we're pulling box so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. Uh, we got four good rounds. They're testing the boxes every month. So, and that was one of the biggest changes after that um, <clears throat> after that fire. That uh, getting that information out because you st- always had uh, uh, four engines coming on the box, but if you don't have the box pulled, you've got one or two, and that uh, that was it. Uh, the um, the, all of the children killed her on the second floor. Uh, no one, uh, and there's two buildings, uh, uh, the south building, there are no deaths. One uh, chief uh, uh, um, that uh, Leroy Dean, uh, he is now, uh, de- deceased, but uh, 
I thought was amazing. He was at this at the Our Lady of Angel Fire, and uh, I called him up uh, one afternoon, completely cold call, nothing planned, and I just wanted to ask him uh, some questions about the fire. And he went through where he broke down the wall into the classroom. Uh, the doors weren't available to get through. He went through all of the details, and this is 30 years later. That's, you know, and that's, they never forget that fire. Oh, oh, I got to imagine. You know, guys, guys from being, again, us having talked about this a couple times, there were guys where that was their first day. There were guys where this was when they were on for 10 or 15 years, or there were guys near the end of their career. Right. And every one of them, that's, this is, this was their, their I, Now I have, uh, I wrote, uh, through the help of uh, Local 2, they put out a blurb in their newsletter that I was looking for some information, and I got a number of first-hand statements of letters written by some of the firefighters. We have those in the um, OLA collection. Wow. Because that is primary history uh, that is we're never going to get because so of the first accounts. Official statements from, like, when they went back, they were, they well, were told to write statements of the fire? No, these. This is just on my uh, gathering them well after the fire. There's a one problem with uh, what they have in the journals. Uh, now, the guys are all at the fire for several hours. When they get relieved and they come back, it was common that they put uh, here. They're at the fire. Uh, Ninety children are killed. Eighty nine. Uh, and they just put uh, GTW, General Truck Work. <laughs> they didn't put anything else. We're at this fire. And so um, the journals don't have a lot of information because they didn't know how to write it. What could they write? So Horrific. So, yeah, um, and at the time, too, you know, it wasn't. You know, I'm, I'm sure for multiple reasons, but, you know, I'm sure a lot of them wanted to forget about it. I'm, Definitely. Uh, I'm sure a lot, I, you know, there wasn't, there weren't, you know, hot coffee lawsuits back then yeah. either, but there wasn't necessarily like a like a need to document, I think, yeah. a lot of these. Oh, right? Well, they didn't have, but the one fireman uh, made a statement that it was re reprinted in a book that anyone who was not there wished they were at this fire. And anyone who was there would never, didn't want to be. So that's the big uh, uh, comment of uh, the difference with the with the attitude. Uh, you know, there's can be a lot of uh, practical jokes and teasing at a fire. But one thing that I've learned from being at uh, the fires as uh, Father Tom's assistant and uh, as time as, chaplain uh, as a chaplain myself, there's never any joking about children. And here you have uh, a school filled with that. 
not one or two. And that's just one thing. An adult, well, at least they've lived part of their life. Children, they haven't. And there's just is no joking. And so OLA, there's no joking about that fire at all. And uh, I was just going to say, circling, <coughs> circling back around, um, Father John. So uh, coming back around, it was back in the late 90s that, you know, again, you were, uh, you had kept your priesthood going at St. Gabe's, and that's where the museum had started, right? Was Correct. that in the basement? Yes. Uh, no, it was on the third floor. Oh, okay. The, just the opposite direction. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> like carrying everything up to the third floor. And that oh, was, that was your, your idea to well, we, start we the had museum? A group, we had a group that wanted to get going. So, And since I was the pastor, uh, the third floor didn't have— uh, You led the charge, though. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, you know, there was a lot of people— uh, but as history was the thing, we have to preserve it. So, and then that's when. Um, so you were there for a little bit. How did uh, where? How did you guys end up at um, at fifty two eighteen West Western or Southwestern? <clears throat> uh, it's kind of hard to put an engine up on the third floor. <laughs> we I felt like a trying. I'm sure. Yeah, we we outgrew our space, yeah. and uh, that was the. That's the um, the problem, and even now we're. Uh, oh, I'm sure you're. Yeah, you're we've at had capacity to. Uh, yeah, we've had to reduce what you what do you save, and um, uh, computers have changed so much. We have a library at the museum, but it's not a lending library, so we're we're not we don't have to keep two or three books of the same subject because a book might get worn out. P- people don't come to, they don't do that type of research anymore. But thank goodness, we don't, if we had to have three copies of each book that we have, oh, yeah. we don't have the space. Well, I, I wanted to touch on that too, because it seems like you have access to some ridiculous information. Like you can go back and you can find if a certain person was on duty at this firehouse on any given day, do you have access to our old journals and stuff like that? Um, when they were available, I wish we had better access. What um, there's um, to get someone who's interested uh, to start off. There's um, a term general orders, general orders, came out um, roughly once a month. Uh, the oldest copy we have is uh, December of 1874. There might be, but we haven't. I haven't found any. I have to go to the Historical Museum to see if they have anything earlier um, or because there were two fires at the Historical Society uh, that destroyed their first collection, and then after they rebuilt it, destroyed the second collection. So I don't know if there's any, uh, but the oldest general order is uh, December of 1874. And those were in the, uh, 
They issued those up until uh, 1970. We have a copy of every uh, general order. Are you talking about like um, the general, the same general orders that we get when we start with like basically our rules and regulations? No, no, this would be uh, personnel uh, uh, announcements of death. Oh, okay. But these were the, those were the general orders. Then they came out with an annual, in at the same time, an annual report that, uh, once a year. Those are your early documentation. Each house would have their journals, and those are, are the hardest thing to to have. And then we have the run books. Now, the run books uh, would put in the personnel, uh, what equipment that they had to get, uh, and they would put the badge numbers, and and that's what I I look for. So I have had um, looking through the uh, uh, general orders, the annual reports. I have twenty three thousand names, and trying to find transfers. Just got uh, new uh, relief transfers. I haven't typed those in yet. They just came out. Uh, picked them up uh, Tuesday at the museum, and that's the basis. I have it in in uh, office access, and if someone needs some information or is looking for family history, I'm happy to give you whatever uh, we have. And I try to record the entrance date retirement date, date of death, any assignments, and now here's when we become um, consistent and inconsistent. Not all of the records are printed. During the Quinn era, there were uh, marshal line transfers. Uh, Is that what they're called? (laughs) They were called that. Someone that you, you're like you're going here. On, <laughs> someone stepped on something, so uh, they lived by O'Hare and they're out <laughs> into Pullman. Uh, you just got reassigned yes. to here. Okay. But the next time you pick him up is if he gets back in good grace and he's transferred to another company. There's no order ever printed of why he was at this other place. <laughs> uh, that might be. For good reason, <laughs> well, but, but you can't you can't track it. So, right. so you don't have all of the information. But uh, so I try to take uh, the um, first order when they're assigned, to, uh, and uh, track that back to where back, and then I'm trying to get uh, photographs of everyone. The fire department had these wonderful pictures. Um, in the 40s and 50s, taking inspection photos. They got all of the people uh, staying outside. It was an individual photographer by the last name of Wade. He wanted to become uh, a fire photographer, and he would distribute all of these pictures to the P 
people who had their pictures uh, who were there that day. And um, sometimes they put the names of the people on them. Sometimes they don't. And they don't. (laughs) Well, do they do this by you, Corey? Like when uh, you get on, do they take like your death picture? You know what? We actually just started doing this. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, Father John, I definitely want to, I might want to pick your brain about some stuff that I got coming up, (laughs) but um, not about me dying yet, but um, but yeah, just about some tracking down some stuff. But yeah, we well, let's, we just started. We when you when you first got here, we had a super interesting conversation that um, about your uh, research on the line of duty um, badges. So okay, can, can we can we pick up that conversation? Sure, because I, I I was so interested, but at the same time, I want to be like we got to stop talking because <laughs> yeah. I want to. I want to talk about this on on the podcast. All right. First of all, if anyone, uh, uh, the starting point, go to the fire academy. Uh, fire academy is closed on Saturday and Sundays, uh, and depending on uh, uh, with the number of classes that they've got on uh, or other events. Uh, would depend on how much access you have. But on the first floor, we have a, a, um, a memorial wall, a display case, that would show you an example of the style of badge uh, for the entire time period of the, the fire paid fire department uh, during the volunteer era. Touch and go. We don't know what they actually had. But we have a sample uh, because, unfortunately, someone has been killed with every type of uh, badge uh, over that time period. So we know what they were wearing. It's a big case. Yeah. It There's is. a lot of badges in there. That's right. Uh, 568 right now. And these badges represent... It's it's, a, it's basically stuff. a replica of your actual badge, badge. right? But they represent at the Quinn um, the, each of, member every that every was each killed in the right. That badge to goes in that. Okay. Now, um, there is some problem with that now today because over the years, what was a, a not a line of duty death is now a line of duty death. Uh, And so it's really difficult to, you don't want to be rewriting history. Right. But but it was definitely a moving target. That's correct. But the other problem is that in, say, in the 30s during the Depression uh, or the 20s, the... um, there was no money for a line of duty like it is now. It was, oh, did they put it in the order? And if a person had a heart attack in quarters, well, they just put, well, is that a line of duty death? Maybe. Right. Maybe not. Uh, it was up to the commissioner. Yeah, I would imagine. It depends on the administration at that time. time uh, some are. Some aren't. So there's no consistency of who, uh, but it's gotten better now 
because of all of the things that kick in with uh, starting with the uh, funeral arrangements, someone has to make a decision early, and the fire commissioner makes that decision. One of the biggest problems is that uh, for when we're going back into history, that once a person dies, he's technically not, he or she is technically not under the control of the fire commissioner. The fire commissioner is only in charge when the person is a member of the department. And when they're deceased, they're no longer a member, and that moves to a different uh, category. So um, that's the difficulty we have when we go back in time. The uh, you're you're trying you're trying to find the badge numbers f- going back to the beginning. You want to try to attrib- attribute every badge. To a badge number and a and a member, correct. And that's kind of your 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 well, mission right now is what you're trying to accomplish, right? Yes, uh, there are two style badges that had numbers, individual numbers. Um, a badge in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. The best way to describe them, they were company badges. Um, A particular company would have 10 badges, and they would have a number one, two, three, up to 10. The captain would receive badge number one, or um, the foreman. The assistant foreman or lieutenant would receive badge number two. When that individual left that particular company, they made that badge per- on to the next. Or? Well, that would re- got returned to the company, and if he became a captain at another house, he would go to that house, and they would give him badge number one from their house. Now, in 1904, this is the start of the individual numbers. And the style of the badge is called the round badge. That's the ones that I'm beginning my research on. Is that the ones that um, our union logo looks like? Similar, with the helmet on the top, yes. Then the rectangular badge or square badge is the current style. There have been minor variations with that. That also has the uh, number. Those are are as an individual number. The difference between the police star and the fire department badge, you, as a police officer in Chicago, you don't go anywhere without your star. Fire department, you're not allowed to carry your badge. And you it's to be on your dress uniform, and that's it. You use your ID card or your file number. So a lot of people, they don't, they've never used their badge number, and it's not um, uh, that 
some don't even know what there is, right. what it was. So uh, uh, I'm trying to find the badge number as an individual, and they're just not all written down. So it's um, sure it's so it, it's a little bit slow, and then trying to get a photograph. With um, everyone. So you were saying that we started using. I forgot what you were you were saying earlier. We started uh, the badges that are at the fire academy. uh, Following the Hubbard Street fire of January 1961, that's when they uh, started to maintain uh, a record of the badges and started to take uh, your death picture. Mm. Don't smile, it's your death photo. That was always the joke at the, uh, at the academy with them. And there's some, the one picture that looks better than the uh, fire department death picture is your driver's license. So you know what quality we're at with, uh, with these pictures. So um, the... Uh, Fire Department Photo Lab, uh, 58, 59 is when it had its start. So we're very uh, early in starting in taking pictures. Uh, and that's what uh, uh, our basis was. So they did a pretty good job with what they had because they did take pictures of the drill school, but they didn't put their names. Uh, uh, and so we miss a lot of, uh, so unless someone wrote them down, uh, it's hard. So a lot of detective work. Oh, oh, it it is a lot of, uh, detective work. Uh, this, um, two months ago, we just had a, or wait, I was sick in February, a a month ago, um, a fam, a gold badge member wrote to let, um, Eileen Coughlin needs to know that uh, the president of the Gold Badge, that um, their mother had died. The line of duty death was a firefighter at Engine 98. He died, had a heart attack in quarters in 1955. We didn't have a picture. They sent me one. And so now... That's one off off your list. list, And we have all three... (laughs) Individuals who've died at uh, 98's quarters, we have their um, their photos. So that and it's here we're a 2020, and we're just getting a picture from 1955. So it's um, it, it takes some uh, uh, detective work, but it's well worthwhile when we we get this. Well, I think it's amazing that you've kind of taken on this task. And, um, you know, I I think it's safe to say that uh, um, I can speak on behalf of all the other members. You know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for trying to preserve this history and kind of, you know, um, you know, especially with these line of duty, uh, you, you tracking back the the numbers and the pictures and stuff like that. It, it, it means a lot. And, and also the, what, what the incident, but the most important part is that if a person is, has that family member, 
you can always look at our material that we have. None of this information do we keep and don't share. Uh, That was um, a number of people in the fire collections don't share anything that they have. Well, I'm in the other group because of the upbringing I had working with these people. At the museum, we have people who share anything that they have. Well, um, why don't you tell the listeners about the museum, where it is, when they can come down, and okay. how to how to get by, and you know, let's let's shed a little more light on the museum. So the to... fire museum is in the quarters, old quarters of Engine 123, uh, 5200 block of Southwestern Avenue. We're on the west side of the um, the park, and uh, a little building. Very limited uh, open hours because we're the, the the same crew that's doing the work is keeping it open. But the museum is uh, open on the fourth Saturday of the month, and uh, we have work days that um, it's available if someone calls one of the members and you need to do some research, we make the time available. But we only have one day a a month, and that's really hard to do any work. You need a lot more uh, peace and quiet uh, than that. But um, So your next open day is March 28th, right? Correct, yes. From from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m.? 2 p.m., right. Okay. So if anybody wants to, you know— Welcome— Come down and um, you have that historic engine. What year is that engine from? Uh, 1928 uh, Aaron's Fox. What is interesting, that uh, engine was at the Hubbard Street Fire. The Hubbard Street Fire was the last fire it went to, and nine men are killed. So you look at that engine, uh, and we have a picture of it pumping underneath the viaduct for the uh, Hubbard Street fire. We have Squad 10 that uh, 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 Ken Little and Howard Brenner restored, and there was a member on that squad who was killed at a fire. So two of the rigs we have were involved in fires where there were uh, fatalities. So, uh, you know, you start looking at that. This isn't just... A fire engine, but it has some really significance because we have the picture of uh, of its the firefighter of it who was show. killed, and uh, and so it, it means something different. We also have a, a statue of Christopher Columbus that was given to the fire department following the Columbian Exposition fire of um, the cold storage building it was to honor the firemen who were killed and that um, uh, statue is in the museum uh, and we have the history of that connection for for those uh, line of duty deaths so uh, there's a what's the, what in your opinion what's the coolest thing you have in that museum well 
the most expensive item is the uh, 1928 Aaron's Fox. (laughs) (laughs) However. Historically, like, is there one piece that's in there that you're like? Well, uh, a simple thing. We've acquired um, a a letter from uh, John Wentworth with his signature, the mayor who started the fire department. So that uh, that was would be significant. Well, what was the letter about? Uh, just some. Data, uh, it was more the signature that yeah. he, he and he was mayor of Chicago. So we we have that. So, uh, you have um, uh, uniforms, uh, uh, badges. Uh, the um, one difference that um, with the uh, Chicago Fire Museum. Now, I haven't traveled to every fire museum, but we have a lot more written material and records than most museums have. We have, uh, so we've spent, uh, uh, this initial group has, uh, and we have to start looking at another generation of um, uh Custodians, hmm. uh, always within its heart, but uh, we put together to save the general orders, the journals, um, the um, uh, periodicals, because that's one do research. Most museums have things that you can look at the display, and then when you're finished, but you can't do any research. Uh, we have a lot of the fo- uh, photographs uh, of extra alarm fires, and uh, because that's what people were who collected this stuff made sure that was preserved. There's there's ten thousand pictures out there, but if we don't know where that fire was, it did, that's right. That's really oh, you can't tell what is it. Uh, and you guys have a, a social media. You guys have a Facebook page. Uh, we have a web page. Web page. Uh, Okay. Um, and they can go and look at some of the pictures on your webpage. So, you, we all you have to do is search uh, yeah. Fire Museum of Greater Chicago. Chicago. <clears throat> yeah, I so I, I, I don't search it too much. I, a, uh, I've got well, things yeah. where I've got up here where I'm <laughs> I'm looking at it or someone will come. And, so there's one question that I've been asking ever since I got to the city, particularly, and I've asked like hundreds of people about some terminology that we use in, in the city and, and, and elsewhere. Where does the term still come from when we refer to uh, fires? Now, this would be... Because I've heard many, many different yesterday, origins of um, this, this term. Father Tom Fransman was over at the museum. Father Tom Fransman restored uh, Truck 53... And if anyone has the model of the fire replica, they put that one out. And uh, Tom had um, it on display at the muster. Beautiful rig that he's just spent hours. And he was just talking yesterday that um, he wanted some pictures of a, a tarp that was a covering because he found some snaps along the side and he wanted to know what it was for. So he's just has gone into it. 
and he was asking that specific thing from uh, the still alarm. And he brought up a, an interesting point of the type of research that he's doing. First of all, the easiest way for a still alarm was that it went only to the specific house. When the next alarm goes up to a box, a bo still in box, a gong was rung, and that went to all of the houses. So the still was only for the local house, and the next one down didn't get. So um, Tom was questioning, though, that term, that word, just isn't right. And the research that he wants to do, and he's got some leads, he believes that it was uh, in the military history of the British that on their warships, they had a term that if there was a problem, whether whatever if it was a horn or a bell was rung, it was called a still. Stand still and determine what you're going to do. <laughs> and so the still alarm, if it was just for a matter of a few seconds, gather your thoughts, what are you going to do instead of running around with the chicken, the head cut off. He believes the or originating term still has something to do with the British Navy, and which would make a lot of sense when you figure out who was coming to America in New York, Chicago, Irish and British, English, and they're already all connected, so they brought that tradition over with them. And there's definitely I wasn't some... expecting that because I've heard everything else besides. So you just throw <laughs> well, another. Just, but that's just Tom's research, right? And we were talking about it yesterday. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes along with the with the. You ever wonder light. about stuff like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, here, this is a perfect opportunity because yeah. I've asked people, and I've gotten that they would look out. The guy on watch would look out, and he would, you know, see if things were still. Well, <laughs> you know, no, like, mm -hmm. but it, 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 Tom Ooh. just feels that the word. Um, yeah, the word's origins and and that's what he wants to. So, if any if listeners have any thoughts on. Uh, uh, British military history. That's what he's looking for. And um, he is uh, um, really uh, is digging, digging into in, this yeah. in stuff. It's not so if we, we find, but uh, Ken never talked about um, the origin of the word. He was always significant into the instruments that were used in notifying uh, the telegraph key and well we still uh, have connect. those the, the the teletype stuff um, the receiver in a lot of these older firehouses they're encased they're encased in that lucite that, that lucite I mean obviously we, we don't use them anymore but 
that's how we used to get the runs. That's right. And you had that uh, had one on display at the fire academy. And we have uh, a, a couple of um, individuals from the museum have put together an actual dialogue with the gong, go- the bells going off, and the key- and telegraph. You can see that yes. on YouTube, right? And but what's important is we have an instrument so that you can relive that history that you can't. Uh, yeah, you uh, you it actually gets toned out. You right. you actually receive a phone call. Then all on the tape. It's right. all on tape. Yeah, but then oh, you wow. see it actually going through to the point where they dispatch the huh. uh, company. So. You're, you're getting from the start of the phone call, and then it comes through this, like, mock dispatch center that they've basically just cut out of the OMC and put right well, there. It was, a, it was a portable display that they brought with them to um, fire prevention uh, gatherings at um, uh, McCormick Place. And oh, yeah, what is interesting is that the fire department had this. And one of the previous commissioners wanted thrown away. Come on. And uh, we had. It's um, um, one of the coolest things ever. Uh, an individual who gave me a phone call and said, "Can you bring your van here?" <laughs> <laughs> so old, it didn't the get old back alley. Uh, <laughs> so it was being thrown away. Yeah. Come on. Uh, and so it didn't get disposed of but put into the I music can't remember but they what, wanted to throw it away i can't remember what you can search but it's on youtube and you you see the whole thing that it's like they press a button and it goes through this whole thing hmm. and it's an actual it's an actual response and that was wow. oh, this we'll was to throw a, that on the uh, on the facebook page yeah, this we'll was find a, it yeah this mm-hmm. was a call that ken and other people they just sat down and they had a person make the phone call uh, they answer it as though the operator at the alarm office is getting it. Uh, we have the box card and uh, everything set up. But but that whole display was ready to go out into the trash. That's unbelievable. Well, Father John, um, thank you so much. I, again, Father John from the Fire Museum of Greater Chicago. Thank you. You can find them at 5218. Southwestern, um, open the fourth Saturday of every month, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, you guys were featured on WGN. I saw a couple of those things. That's pretty cool. They oh, came the out. the news, right. Yeah. Right. Um, and you guys have your membership uh, on there, right? If you and and we have a, a, a quarterly newsletter. Yep. Which you guys actually put us in. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was a nice. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so thank Jim you again Zim. for that. And yeah. um, we've uh, we've got your charity on there, the the Fire Museum of Greater Chicago charity, right? Uh, correct. Five hundred one C, and uh, you guys, your charities are, are what again, Father? For um, with that uh, with the CFD charity. Inc. Oh, oh, the CFD yeah. charities is also the the uh, the chaplain, right? And uh, the five eleven club, okay. plus the museum. So. Oh, that's you caught me a sorry, little sorry. bit different there, <laughs> but uh, the 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 umbrella group is the charities. These three uh, are separate. Obviously, the money that goes to the museum is spent on the museum. The money that uh, the Five Eleven Club receives is spent on for uh, all of their uh, stuff that they help. 
with a helping personnel, fire personnel, police officers at the fire, and the chaplain ministry uh, goes returns to the uh, where assistance for injured firemen, um, if there's a fire in their house, uh, medical conditions. We can't supply as much, but we can be a, a gap, a filler. But we what we do is it goes back to the uh, the people who have been contributing. So that that's the uh, and that's the uh, and people charities. can donate to your charities. Well, from your- or to the, either the uh, to the chaplains, uh, not to the. Uh, individual chaplain, I don't want my name on this stuff because I turn that over to the uh, right the fire, fire chaplains, chaplains ministry cha- fund. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Um, and thanks. Uh, next time you see uh, Jim Ziegler, thank you for we'll um, having him help out uh, to make this happen. So, thank you again. And um, yeah, um, thank you for all this hard work, Father John. It's, no it's preserving preserving our history is going to keep us moving forward. Thank you. Okay, next time on, uh, we'll see you next time on Chicago's Bravest Stories. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can download this episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and TuneIn. Thanks for joining us. Hey everybody, it's Steve here. I'd like to talk to you about another awesome company that helps bring the podcast to you free of charge. Chicagoland CPR. It's a first responder owned and operated CPR company. As a first responder myself, I can't express to you enough how important CPR training is for everybody in the community. They offer real customizable world-class education for all their clients. They have a combined 30 plus years of field experience as fire service and EMS educators throughout the Chicagoland area. Chicagoland CPR is extremely focused on providing real-world, no-fluff education, and the main focus is on organization, an engaged classroom, working with students to completely understand the material, getting your uh, certificates out on time, and most importantly, coming to your facility. They offer a wide variety of American Heart Association classes, CPR, first aid, AED, ACLS, PALS, and a full complement of StarGuard Elite, LifeGuard, and Aquatic Safety classes. Our clients include nursing homes, hospitals, long-term care facilities, fire departments, schools, park districts, coaching staff, and many other groups throughout the communities. If you're interested in hosting a class at your facility for your employees, or you have any questions about services and pricing, contact Chicagoland CPR. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, the World Wide Web. I can't express to you, again, how important CPR and first aid training is. They want to hear from you soon. Give them a call. Find them. Let's set you up a class to help save some lives. Also sponsored by Chicagoland Event Medical Services, we are a first responder, owned and operated first aid and emergency medical service provider. Our mission is to protect the lives and well-being of event patrons all over the state of Illinois by providing professional and experienced career EMS practitioners in an event setting. Our services are completely customizable to the needs of our customers. Our business was born out of a necessity to provide competent health care providers to both large and small events. We do this by bringing firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, nurses, lifeguards, first aid tents. We also customize your own site safety and emergency response plan, and that information will always be available to your staff. We pride ourselves on providing the best patient care possible to your events. Hey guys, if you're a first responder or you know a first responder that has a story to tell, we'd love to hear it. 
please reach out to us at Chicago's Bravest Stories on Facebook or Instagram. We'd also like to thank the Missing Chums for their musical contribution to the podcast with the song, Yes, You May. <laughs>